podcast one production. From the inside with Peter Ricks. This is part two of Peter's conversation with legendary InXS manager Chris Murphy. In this episode, Chris talks about the early years of growing InXS. Was there a moment in it all where you recognised what they had, uh, or, or did it? Was it like I'm? I'm never sure because I, I don't <coughs> think I've ever been smart enough to really know these things, but. There is a moment when it, it's always dawned on me, oh, my God, this is this is working. And it tends to be more of a surprise to me than at halftime it is to the band. Um, yeah, look, uh, I, I could be real, uh, you know, say I'm really clever, but I think there was, firstly, I think somebody... My grand, somebody in my family, or, or a gene in my, in my in my in my pedigree, put this um, thing that nothing's impossible to do. Okay. Yeah. So, and it's still today. It's still, you know, you, the announcements that's going to be made in the next couple of months. People are going to go, "How the hell did you do it?" And I still don't know, but I, I've done it. So, and I've always said to people, you know, if you have to go up, if you, if you have to go up the top of the hill and you take a helicopter, I'll still walk up the hill, go the hard way. So, I think. I think there was a blind uh, faith about what I potentially could do with them, but I also had a confidence that I'd already broken cultures or angels, for example, that if I could do it in Australia, I could potentially do it internationally. It's still the same model, right? Um, and then really what happened was I th- thought about it um, and and I called him into my little office at 48 Bank Street um, uh, 48 North, North Street, North Sydney. In North Sydney. And my, my office was so small, it was a dungeon, that the, the six guys had to sit in, in one, one in front, two to three in front and three behind. But it, was, it wasn't big enough. Like for, economy class. Yeah, yeah, like economy class. Economy class office. And I said to them, guys, I've been thinking about this thing about managing you. And they were going, yes. Because, you know, they're young, enthusiastic kids. And uh, I said, look... I'll do it on one condition. They go, yeah. And I go, no, 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 just settle down because the next part might scare you. And, they, and I said, I'll manage you on the condition that we, we are going to be an international band because I've done it with Australian bands and that'll bore me just doing that again. I, and I don't, and I, if we're going to do it, I want to break. I want to be in the history books because at that stage, no, any, no Australian rock and roll band had been in the history books, in, in, really, you know. So and that, was the, that was the mandate. And then it was funny because the funny story of all the part of that story is that Michael was sitting in the middle, in the front, of course, and as soon as I said, want to be an international band, you've got to be prepared to be a band. He started putting his hand up like a, like a kid at school going, yes, yes, I'll do it, yes, I'll do it. And that was really cute. So we said, okay, let's, let's do it. And I, I, you know, I had Ray Hearn come to me and said, oh, that band's never going to make it. Nobody, no, I don't recall one person in this entire country ever agreeing that the Inexcess were an international band. No one wanted to sign them. I couldn't get a record deal for them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, so... But those but, struggles in the beginning, you know, you're, here you are, you've, you've had a, already had a stellar 
journey and you're, you're not exactly old and then but you've got a wife, you've got, a, you've got your first child and really then you've got to take the ultimate risk to do that because nothing in those early days of a, of a band building itself, particularly cost of recording and, and, and actually getting out of the country, uh, there's, no, there's no film funding there's no government walking in saying, here's, here's $100,000, is there? Look, I still don't know to this day how I got through any of it, to be really, really honest. I, 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 my parents weren't rich or anything like that. I didn't have a big... Nobody left a big will or anything. I actually still, to this day, there was one rule that I did say to the band right up front is I'll do this on the condition that I'm paid first. Right. Because if I'm not paid first, I don't have an office, I can't function, you won't have a career. Mm. And I still remember, uh, I think my sister, Sean, was originally the co-manager, actually. I keep forgetting about that. Uh, and uh, she was doing the accounts and she'd go, Chris, we've got to pay the truck, we've got to pay the lighting company, we can't get paid. And I said, well, I'll leave. Just tell everyone I'll leave. Uh, I said, I have to be very strict on this because I, I just, I, that's the rule, mm. Okay. I basically had that rule nearly in my entire life uh, with that because it's like, uh, what are we, you know, what are we, servants? So um, anyway, so... Uh, but that, sorry, because but, but there, there is a... The, the, no one gets through the business to where you got to um, without conflict, without having to, I, not say tread on toes, but the, there is a lesson to learn about when you say yes... Because in the beginning, you say yes to everything. And then there's a certain point where you can't. You've got to actually learn to say no. But, but doing that and building relationships at the same time, is, 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 for me, that was always the major benefit that they had with you was that somehow, even though you gave half the world the shits because they see you as a pit bull, the, the answer was the Most band. Of. Yeah, but the band never saw that. And, and frankly, you, didn't, you could never do those deals that you managed to do without having relationships. Now, did you have to live in America to do that? Yeah, no. quite simply. Well, see, no, no, I, 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 for a guy that was so, really so bad at school, it was scary. I actually, I actually, I'm actually a really good researcher. You know, uh, it doesn't matter what it is. Whatever I do, I research thoroughly. <clears throat> and what I'd been doing as an agent watching, you know, like I, what would happen, okay, in the, in the prime days of Solo Premier? Uh, uh, you know, Rod Willis would walk in and say, I'm taking Cold Chisel to America. Uh, they might be really, Warners might be releasing the album over there. Can you sign a letter for me for the get a visa saying how they're an important cultural experience, in, uh, you know, of Australia? So I'd sign all the letters and then they'd go off. And weeks later, some time later, they accompany, the manager come on the door going, quick, quick, book your tour, we've got no money. I go, okay, okay. Um, then they're going to be dragging, same thing. Quick, quick, book me a tour, I've got no money. Sign, it was like signing, you know, here's a letter, cold chisel, angels, dragon, and then it'll go off. Mm. But the, I could see they were all making one f- little fundamental mistake. One, they didn't, un- they didn't do any research on the American culture. Um, so they were all getting there, um, and these record companies and people take him out to lunch and go, "We're going to meet you guys. Can't wait, you guys, to get. I just love you guys. Are you? Guys, I just love the sound. I love the look. Blah blah blah." And they could run home to their wife and say, "Let's buy a house. Let's buy a car. We're going to be famous." So they actually thought that's how it, you know it was all going to happen. But the other thing too, 
is that they just really just thought they're going to. They're still doing it today. Get on a plane, go over there, and hang around for a week or so, and then come back. And you know, again, what people don't study enough or understand is, in the U.S., it's a big place with a lot of things happening within itself. You know, they have millions of people coming through their doors every week, every day, every month. After about two weeks, even you're 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 a distant memory. So I picked that up and thought, okay, I've got to work out how to do that. Um, so, um, you know, firstly, I made sure I didn't get sucked into any hype, right? So it didn't matter what they told me. I'd go, oh, yeah, that's, that's fantastic, that's fantastic. But, the, um, but also I knew that I would have to position myself somewhere. And when I did my first global trip and I went, uh, I don't know, wherever which way, I went to LA first, I think, um, and I went there. Oh, and the other thing I noticed, all the managers s- stayed in L.A. Glenn Wheatley was in L.A., Rod Willis was in L.A. When I used to say to him, well, hey, Rod, what are you doing? as some surfing today. I know, well, that's what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> uh, all, every manager went to L.A. And what happened is when I got to L.A., I didn't like it. In fact, I hated it. I went, ugh, ugh, and I couldn't get a vibe. Couldn't get any sense of the a feeling. So I got on a plane and uh, there's, I can tell you, that's, that's a story for another time. Went to, thought I was flying to New York. No one told me there was a New, Newark uh, airport. And then I got, got in a gypsy taxi with one windscreen wiper who took me to a, 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 a homeless person's hotel instead of the other hotel. Um, that was an interesting night, all raining. First night, first night. First night. Yeah. But the interesting thing, as I drove through, as we drove into New York, it was real, I had the strangest feeling. And I just went, this is my town. This is my place. So I went back to the hotel, eventually found the, got the hotel, found the oldest clothes I had with me um, and, you know, the most tattiest things I had, put them on and I went and walked the streets until um, I was in, the, in those days, very, very, very dangerous area called the Meatpacking District. Oh, the meat and packs. some guy grabs me and goes, what the fuck, man, what the fuck are you doing here? And I, as soon as I spoke with Australian accent, he goes, get the fuck out of here. And he said, the taxis won't even stop for you. So he, he, he I don't know how he did it. He said, let me, and he put, grabbed the taxi and said, no, just get out of here quick. Put me in a taxi. And that was my first night in New York. So, um, you, but when you got there, you, the, you'd done a record deal in Australia and there's a journey of those record deals that you managed to do. But what... At the beginning, did you have freedom to do a deal in America for that band? Well, again, it goes back to uh, all watching all the bands, cultures or sign international deals and then not have their records released. Yeah. So that was like, hmm. And I got to work out pretty quickly. And I know a guy in, in, in New York or LA who he gets his bonus from uh, Pink Floyd. He doesn't get his bonus from cultures or from Australia. Um, so... The uh, so that was that, but then I I had there was no one interested in excess to be really honest. Mm. Um, and then what happened? Uh, a guy called Michael Browning came and saw me and said, "I want to start a record company." And I was like, "Oh, okay." So I could you know, cut long story short, we're going to work together. And he uh, and, and and he's AC he was ACDC's manager. So I thought, "Oh, I've hit the jackpot, right?" He's got ACDC off internationally. He said he'd retired. Wasn't he came back here. I've got this guy as a leading. That's my, that's my new mentor, right? So I signed the band to Deluxe 
at Records and Publishing. I remember. <sighs> With uh, water still, I'm still paying for that. Um, the, uh, and that was great. We put out an album. So he rang me one day, called me one, called me one day. When we were releasing just, we're going to release Just Keep Walking as a, as a single. And, uh, and he said, we've got to do an edit. And I said, what's an edit? He said, we've got to cut the middle, that instrumental part out of the middle. I said, there's no one in, in, in this world who's going to edit an excess record. Well, whilst my ass points to the ground. So he goes, no, no, you won't get on radio. I said, that's in excess, mate. Either live it or, or leave it, mm. and that's that's why I manage the band. This is the this is why this is the character that they've got that I want. I don't want them to be a standard pop rock band. So that was a part of my my big push, and that's why in excess got a lot of trouble. I got in a lot of trouble in America, lots of trouble by people like Doug Morris because I kept doing all these risky things they didn't like. But in the end, um, you know. They worked. They, they worked. But eventually, I, I, oh, I, with the XTC tour, the, the agent, John, John in London, called me to thank me for doing such an amazing job for XTC. So if you're ever in London, this is Chris Murphy for you, if you're ever in London, drop by and see me. So I worked out how to buy a ticket to London. And again, I don't know, I, this is the early days of NXS. Yes. So where did I get that bloody 500 pounds or 1,000 pounds, whatever it was from? So I jump on a plane. Air India probably because they were the cheap ones in those days. Oh, I don't know what I was on. And uh, I went over and I had meetings with all the record co- He The deal with, was, uh, with RCA here, he, Deluxe's deal. So I went and saw the London Deluxe, uh, London RCA. They didn't even know about Deluxe. Talked them into, you know, this releasing in excess record. And they said, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I got an agent, Richard, uh, uh, Richard Herming. Uh, Herming, Herming, Richard Herming, Hermitage. I can't remember. I got an agent. And I remember sitting in a pizza shop with him and very clearly, and he asked me about what am I going to do with NXS. I said, NXS is going to be the biggest band in the world. And he goes, I know. And I said, that's the first time I ever heard anyone agree with me. And he said, I said, what, 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 do, you, what do you mean? Why do you, why do you think they're going to be the biggest band in the world? And he goes, because you're going to make them the biggest band in the world. I can see that. So that was, that was a bit of a moment. Um, so and England became a major territory too, didn't it? Only 1988. That band didn't have any success until, until 1988. It's a it's a fallacy what people think about in excess in England. In, the first record that broke was Need You Tonight, oh, right. and that was on its third re-release. First time ago. Anyway, so what happened is I got I came home and I had a meeting with Michael Browning. And this is it's a long way of answering your question, but I'm also answering it for no, no. other managers and other bands. It, it, and to have, you've got to have this level of fight or tenacity in you, or you get walked on. So uh, I came back, I had a meeting in his office at North Sydney, Michelle Bennett was his assistant. And I sat down, I said, I've been to London and um, uh, to RCA, they released the album, I've got an agent. Uh, I can get the, oh, I can get the XCC tour. And get on the XCC tour, but there's a ten thousand pound buy-on, which what you pay buy-on yeah. to the tour. For those who don't understand that, um, and uh, AC uh, and RCA will promote the record around the time. And here we go, first album. And he looked at me and he said, "I don't give you any money." He said, "You're going to do it the hard way, like I did." I said, "No, no, 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 no. I've just been on the plane. I've just done the thing. I've got everything set up. I just need, ten- I just need some tools. I just need the buy-on, a bit of tool support, RCA." And he said, "No." Go and do it the hard way, like me. So I, I went, see you later. 
got up, shook his hand and went to Alan Arnold Hemsway and, and, and off we went and that deal went out the window. And uh, Was it hard, that part? Was it lengthy? Oh, it's very stressful. Yeah. Well, stressful because, again, um, the, you know, um, yeah, 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 it was... But, uh, but Sorry to interrupt, but th- that is the bit that I was talking about at the beginning is if you're not a pit bull, if you're not willing to have the conflict at the points and you've got to work out where you've got to have them, it's not going to work, is it? Yeah, it's a combination of, but you know, it's combat. Look, I, I operate on a lot. Most of my my work is a motivation, motivating people. But if I get to the point where someone I think is just jerking me off or uh, or, or not doing their job, well, then then there's another guy that comes out. So, did the band know what you were doing? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm still telling. I was in Tokyo with John and Kirk. Uh, seeing a production, live production, that we're using the director for our live production, and and they're in a taxi, and I said, "Did you guys, um, you guys, guys think about?" I just said about touring, and they were sitting in the back, and I was sitting in the front, and, and you know, the Japanese guy couldn't speak any English, and they talked about touring, and I said, "Do you guys ever realise how you tour, how you got to tour?" And they said, "This is this is three weeks ago," and they said, uh, "Oh, uh, record company support." I said, I never took one dollar in record company support for tour support. Not one dollar. Oh, oh, but, but had, 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 we, had we gone on the road? I said, because I did three different record deals and um, I, got the advance, I, got, I got the advances three times instead of once and I used all that, that, those extra funds to keep you on the road. That's how you were on the road all the time because we, 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 were, we were independent. So for even to the point when... I had moved to New York and I got an office in an ATCO, with it, which is a part of Atlantic, um, and they gave me an office free, again, because I had no money. Um, and the, um, she came in the, into, the, into my little office one day and goes, hey, we're shipping the record or something. I don't know, I don't know what she said. And I, she said, uh, maybe we might need the band to come and a couple of guys to do some promo. I said, Promo? I said, the band's in, 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 in uh, the waiting room at, uh, at New, at, in Auckland at the moment, New Zealand. I said, what are they goddamn doing there? And I said, they're on their way to, uh, to LA. They're playing in San Diego on Friday. She said, you can't do that. We're not ready. You can't do that. I said, can't do what? I said, um, oh, we're playing to San Diego for Bill Silver um, uh, uh, on Friday. And she said, no, no, we need six weeks. The album's got to be out. And I said, no, not my world. So I said, it's, she said, turn the band back. I said, it's too late. So, and that Friday we played to 98 people at the San Diego yeah, Inn or something. The Silver Dollar Inn. Mm. This is From the Inside with Peter Ricks, and this is part two of his conversation with legendary in excess manager Chris Murphy. In a moment, they talk about the MTV revolution of the 80s and how In Excess rode that wave to global success. So my observation is that, frankly, none of this was lux because it, there's a certain point here where in, in, by the mid-80s, MTV's arrived, you're, you're, but you're not there. I mean, these stories and the journey that you took, none of that's really... I mean, I, it's none of it's luck, really. It's about making decisions and then setting yourself up and then waiting for the tidal waves to arrive if they could. Well, you know, like, that, that, that's uh, interesting. Thank you, Peter. But the, the, the MTV thing was, was, was really good because I, what had happened, actually, I, it's even better, there's a better story behind, behind the, 
uh, besides the album masters, the record, four different record companies, is that one day I uh, got a guy called Gary Grant um, and... Uh, and my sister, who was still involved, and I took him out the back uh, yard of the office that we had. I sat in the grass and I said, we're doing it all wrong. And they said, what do you mean? I said, at the moment, we've got our expertise is all wrong. I'm an ex-agent, he's a tour manager, and you're an agent as well, Sean. So we're all booking people. The future could be in video. I said, one day in the future, and this is exactly what I said, you might have Rolling Stones appear in Tokyo and it might beam it all around the world. So all this live experience will mean nothing. And I said, and, um, and I said, I always remember what my father said to you about a week before he died when we are going to ice hockey practice once. He said, when you come into the business, you're not going to do live, you're not going to do live bookings. And he said, I've got that covered. Uh, you're going to go into TV. That's the future. So this is 69. Mm. And you're going to sweep the floors. You know, TV. I said, why have I got to sweep floors, Dad? He said, because I want you to learn from the bottom up. Mm. And I said, okay. So I guess I always had that, you know, visual is the future. It, you know, it was planted there probably by my father. So they said, oh, so Gary Grant wouldn't have known what I was talking about. Sean said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I think you guys should concentrate on the live and I think I should concentrate more on the, the future, the visual side and everything. I think it's going to be very super important. So we started making videos about everything, like everything, video, video, video. So we, so we, so then we started our own production company called Truism. And the trick that I did with that is that the record companies didn't realise that the visual could become commercial. They thought it was a promotional vehicle. So what I did is I had, I still in excess, true as I'm a part of the company, we own all in excess's videos. So the record company can't use that video for commercial use. They, could, they, they thought they could because it's got the master. Um, for the fact is because we own the video mm. copyright. So Live Baby Live was all done by just a truism production, for example. That's why we own it and control it. So... Uh, that was the other thing that was fantastic because I would go and get Richard Lionstein to make a clip for Burn For You for five grand and I'd uh, take it to Atlantic and say, here's your, give me, here's your invoice for five grand and I'd go to Polygram, so there's your invoice for five grand and I'd go to Warner's. Uh, the advantages of having a multi multinational deal. So now, yeah. if anyone thinks at this stage listening to this, I'm some sort of crook. No. It's, no, 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 because sometimes people, I've told, sometimes people will look at me and go, did you just skim that record company for that much money? I said, you know what? When it comes to big corporations and I see that they've got a Mercedes, uh, they've got limos out, out the front and they've got private jets and then what they're spending on for lunch and whatever they're putting up their nose and whatever else they're doing and whatever else they're spending, it's my job to take as much money off them and give it to my friends and that's, to me, that's Robin Hood. And, so I'm going to keep doing it, and I still do. But you lived through a whole world of major record company creative guys, whether it's um, the Turkish Brothers at Atlantic or, or I mean, I've never really been sure they of that. They were actually Turkish. He's just not making it up. It's Ahmet and Nesui. The, the Erdogans, yeah. yeah. Who, I, who I met and who, you know, they could they could talk about about music with such love and affection and and eventually, um, I mean, I always remember with Warner Brothers when they sold it, well, they merged with AOL in what was probably the worst deal of, of a lifetime but an accountant started running that, that record company and it is a shadow of what it was in those days. That, that w- watching all of that evolve, one of those things I've always been interested in is with your 
with that level that you've been through, young Australian bands starting out, when they listen to you and what they talk about, the, the, the truth is as, as a business model, they've got to have some sort of reality of, of representation, don't they? They can't do it on their own. Um, do you think? Y- yes, uh, 100%. I think um, I actually made a note about that at 2 o'clock this morning. Uh, if I can just quickly, I'll have a look, see if I can find. I th- look, uh, yes, I think <laughs> without putting, I've got to be very careful here. I sat on a plane once with a, with a manager, successful manager, and who had many, some very good artists that I thought one of them in particular should have been the band that followed in excess. I thought it was a fate complete, and it didn't. And I sat in the plane. He's a nice guy, by the way, this guy. I sat in the plane with him, and uh, I started asking about the bands. And I said a very simple question. At one stage, I turned around and said, what was your 10-year uh, what what was the ten years uh, business ex- business model strategy that you explained to your band? He said ten years. These pricks couldn't get past the second album. Aha, aha! Mm. There was the answer. Yeah. There was the answer, because we the reason I could say no to things or yes to things is because I had a ten year plan, mm. and also in excess knew this, we weren't going overseas. Just, we weren't going internationally to become super famous and come home and go fishing. Mm. This is going to be a, they knew it was a hard, hard fight, mm. and we we're going to have to tour and tour and tour. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I look. It's I feel so sorry for so many. Uh, it's one of the, my greatest. I hate seeing anything with talent, whether it's a, a polo horse, a racehorse, a child, a band, an artist, uh, go to waste. It's so rare, good talent. If everyone thinks it's, you know, particularly this day, you know, everyone thinks they're going to be a singer or something, everybody, but it's so rare, real talent. It's so rare. And when it's screwed up by a racing trainer or by a manager or or a record company it's 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 nearly a sin as far as i'm concerned and i don't i think a lot of it is because the people don't have the guts to explain to people um, you know to t- you got to take you got to take the you got to take the fight in part 3 of peter rix's conversation with chris murphy chris talks about taking inexcess's global success to even greater heights along with the plans for the future That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.